your own conversation with comfort which is a platform where we discuss policy and research matters it's hosted by the africa policy center and uh, we find uh, fine sons and daughters of africa to talk to them about issues that concern africa I would like you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and Pasga. Okay, thank you very much. I'm very much pleased to be here. This is my first time to be in Mukomo and I love it already. Thank you. Well, my name, and I always tell people, don't try to pronounce my surname because I don't have insurance for you. <laughs> but my name is Anthony Mbeyange. I'm the executive director for the Partnership for African Social and Governance Research, headquartered in Nairobi. Pasga is an American-based organization but co-registered in Nairobi, Kenya. It was set up in 2011 with the mission of advancing research excellence in public policy and governance in Africa. Mm-hmm. Currently, we are operating in over 26 countries in the continent, and we are expanding to reach out to more in building that capacity. Thematically, we are organized in three key areas. Research and police, higher education, where we have master's and doctoral programs, and <clears throat> a program we call Pedagogical Leadership, where we train African scholars in how to teach better on pedagogy, and then we have professional development and training. Mm-hmm. Our current extension is looking into uh, setting up another layer or unit on policy engagement and communication outreach, which is focusing on building the capacity of how to engage, mm-hmm. how to do outreach for effective communication of research mm-hmm. and evidence. Let's let's start with uh, the research area which is your the first one you talked about uh, in in as far as the continent is concerned uh, what's your fair view of how much research is happening how to what extent are african scholars actually engaged in in research and what more needs to be done Well that's a very tricky question sub-saharan africa by and large is underrepresented and on a global landscape when it comes to research so research uptake and generation of evidence in the continent is still at the baby steps let me put it that way although now there's a lot of momentum towards increasing uptake increasing generation of evidence we see a lot of momentum and, and engagement in bringing african scholars to the board to make sure that research is also african led mm-hmm. there are still steps that needs to be taken further mm-hmm. i think uh, research in the continent especially in areas that are pressing public policy that are emerging issues mm-hmm. has not received enough support and attention and there's room for actually doing more and we see that a lot now that covid is going down we see countries we see donors partners who are very keen on what is happening in africa because by and large for the last 2 3 years since the onset of covid the continent was understudied and there's mm-hmm. so much that uh, partners in the global north even in the global south don't know yet about what is happening in the continent so there's a lot of appetite for research mm-hmm. there's a lot of appetite for building the needed capacity to do good and robust and rigorous research mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of appetite for funding and decolonizing knowledge in the continent so that africans take the lead in generating evidence in the continent even before we talk about africans <coughs> taking the lead uh, in terms of generating that evidence mm-hmm. let's even start from the point of view of the ex- the evidence that already exists mm-hmm. how much of it is even being utilized is ending up in influencing policy you know <laughs> can we say for instance that when we look at our national policy agenda across the sub-saharan africa for example mm-hmm. that 
that uh, the research that academics are doing is actually ending up there somehow? Well, the answer is yes and no. Mm-hmm. By and large, no. Uptake of research, first the existing research, it's a cultural thing. You know, um, in the government machine, the public sector, evidence-informed decision-making or policy-making is still a rare phenomenon. Okay? It's a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. We are yet to get to a point where our policymakers will appreciate the role of evidence, the role of data in informing decision-making in the continent, particularly in the public sector. Capacity is rare, um, but that culture of uh, it relying on evidence, most of the decisions are by and large done on political whims and fancies mm-hmm. of those in power, ad hoc mm-hmm. decision-making. So I think there's a need to, um, there's a movement in the continent happening now with existing evidence to build the culture of evidence-making and there's a lot of trainings that, for example, PASCA we are doing <coughs> and other institutions that I'm, I'm, I'm a founder and a board member are doing to sort of build that culture, number one. So it requires mm-hmm. that mental shift, mindset shift mm-hmm. from ad hoc to more evidence-informed decision-making, thinking around data and the role of evidence for informing policies. But the second, the second element to this is also... Because there's disconnect between researchers and policymakers. So you see, even researchers, when they do their own work, does not find traction. That work doesn't find traction to the policymaking spaces because it, first it could Yeah, be, I've seen research done on the continent that has just like two views or three downloads and stuff like that. Yes. And uh, that's quite painful. Yeah, it is. It is. But what I think is also... So there are two layers. At micro level, individual researchers coordinating the evidence to the government. That is a challenge. And also there's also what I usually call um, conflict. Mm. You do your research. First of all, there's a conversation we're having now with some donors in the West uh, in terms of how do we identify researchers and institutions that are generating evidence in Africa. So there's a lot of duplication. Mm. And what happens is Confusion in policymakers because you would walk into a policymaker's office with evidence. I would walk in with mm. evidence. Someone else would walk in with evidence. And, and sometimes contradictory. <coughs> yeah. Yes. So policymakers are stranded and they end up not. So there's a need to have a cohesive way of how do we galvanize evidence and share with policymakers. That's very important. Mm. And that also speaks to the need to have researchers who understand the process of how to engage policymakers. So there's a long way to go along that lines. And and also there's mistrust. Mm. Uh, mistrust in terms of policymakers usually tend to be skeptical. They're very skeptical in terms of what you're producing. They don't understand the rationale. And most often because we tend to poke holes in what they do, mm. they're also defensive. Yeah. But at the same time, researchers and academicians, they tend to push their own agenda, which may or may not necessarily speak to the challenges that policymakers are interested in, do not answer the problems that policymakers are facing. Mm. So you see that disconnect create tensions all mm. the time. And that's why you see not necessarily that evidence is not there. Even if evidence is not there, it is less used because, mm. because of the environment within which these policymakers and researchers interact. Mm. So there's, there's a long way to go in terms of sort of recreating that environment and making sure it's very enabling, mm-hmm. it's very engaging for policymakers to listen, for researchers to engage in a way that is willing for all of them. 
Let's let earlier on you <coughs> really important, and earlier on you said something very profound about uh, research, the Busia effect, mm-hmm. <laughs> the fact mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. a lot of research happened in a place, and then uh, you know the the community remains the same in mm-hmm. spite of such research producing excellent knowledge and so on, and and the thing that gives me. Uh, concern is uh, to to what extent is research even relevant if a particular community can be the subject of research for so many years mm-hmm. and then it just never changes it remains the same at least if you're using one indicator of poverty mm-hmm. uh, let's say the community remains po- uh, you know poverty stricken for as many years as possible what mm-hmm. does that say about the relevance of research well it depends so the, this, in economics we call objective function what's your objective function okay one would want to pro- maximize profit, another would want to minimize cost. So it, 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 it may, it may, it may not. Mm. Uh, on, on the one hand, you're looking at a researcher who wants to develop their career. They publish novel research that can be published in a novel journal. They'll go with it. They're good to go. Mm-hmm. The extent to which that research can translate and taken up locally for transforming people's lives, that's a completely different conversation. And I think that's where Africa is struggling uh, in terms of good research that is being done. Our countries have been used, if you, if you have read an article about helicopter researchers, yeah. uh, um, our countries are used as guinea pig for doing this novel research. We cannot talk of development in the world right now if you are either not talking of Asia and Africa. Mm. And Africa is the most place where everyone wants to come. And so Westerners come here, partners from Global North come here. They want to start development from African perspective. Mm. So it creates, it builds careers on their side. But the extent to which that research can be taken up. In Busia, for example, that research has been done. But one of the research that was done in 2004 on dewarming children, the former prime minister, Raila Odinga, actually used that to deworm Kenyan children. So you see, it took him coming from that local lo- locality mm. and community to understand that there's an experiment that was done that had an implication on children's health and well-being. And it has a profound impact in terms of how children can actually be supported health-wise. Mm. <coughs> With him as a prime minister, Kenyan children were dewarmed. So, but, but how does research like that get the attention of a prime minister, for example? Because most of our policy makers are so disconnected to what is going on in the research world. Do you know uh, how the Kenyan scenario happened? That the prime it's engagement, it's engagement, getting the attention of people who would actually do something about the research. One, Busia is, is a locality where the then prime minister is coming from, around the same area. Mm-hmm. So he has vested personal interest in seeing that, oh, this experiment shows our children are not going to school, their cognitive abilities are affected because of not being dewarmed. Well, why can't we deworm them? And then the study was very, very robust. It showed even the cost of deworming, how much it would cost. It was very little. Mm. Then with him in the policy space and being able to, to push for things to happen, he was able to push for that. But there are many other research that has been done in the agricultural sector, in health, you mm. know, that may or may not be taken up. In some mm. instances, for example, research in Kenya on social protection was taken up by the government. Yeah. Again, you need to have champions. And this is where we need critical mass of people in the government who understand and appreciate research. Mm. Because if they don't, they won't read it. 
But if the more you create critical mass of public policy people who actually understand the value of evidence, data, mm. and research to inform policies, the more, the higher the chances for such evidence to be taken up. In fact, they should be looking for that evidence before they formulate policies. Okay, so still talking, uh, still sticking with uh, public policy, uh, I think one of the common things that is often said, and, and I'm sure you've heard it somewhere, mm. is that Africa is a continent of, um, of uh, great policies created, but implementation always fails. Mm-hmm. Like we have so many policy experiments that have failed on the continent, and most of them have been um, influenced from the West, and then they have been uh, implemented here. They are supported by the West and implemented in on the continent, but then they always fail. What is it that makes it so difficult <laughs> to implement what is otherwise described as good public policy with good intentions? Okay, so there are two things. One is, is policies coming from the West, created and curated in the Western context, most often, and this is the dilemma of international development, why it failed, mm. because they don't fit into our context. Mm. Think about structure adjustment programs, mm. where well, our government were imposed to do market reforms, but we were not ready to do market reforms, and our economy is literally collapsed. You know? uh, so what we are learning now, and this is where we need to decolonize knowledge, mm. we need to have local content, locally based research that speaks to our current environment. Because, yes, we have seen Western models developed. I can give you a very good example. When COVID started, the University of, University of London, College London, UCL, they developed this very interesting model predicting African death rates on COVID. And they said, you know what? Africans will be dropping dead like flies. And on the exactly. And the streets and all everything. the... Yeah. You can name it. I had a conversation with the United Nations at some point with some colleagues, and then I said, I need to read this model, Visori. I need to understand it. So I went and looked into the model. I looked at the assumption of the model. They are based on projections of what is happening in China, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, which has nothing to do with what is happening in Africa. Mm -hmm. So clearly, the parameters of the model were based on Western reality. Mm -hmm. African reality was not factored in. Mm -hmm. And what we know now... No one was dropping dead like flies the way it was predicted. They were utterly wrong. Mm. So what I'm saying is there's a need to contextualize research to our local content. By and large, the failures of implementation has been because such research is out of context. Such evidence is out of what? Out of context. It does not apply to our realities. Well, in some cases, maybe it did apply and it can apply. We also have flowers on, their, on, our, on our demand side, meaning the government failed to implement for other reasons, corruptions and all sorts of ills that we know of. Mm. But by and large, what we know, Western models, um, evidence that was generated from Western replicated in our countries never worked because the context, the environment that we operate is way different. Mm-hmm. So that is why we need to decolonize knowledge. We need to have African-led type of research and evidence generated mm-hmm. because we better understand our local context. We mm-hmm. can clearly translate the research into more meaningful policy uh, implementation that makes sense to mm-hmm. our needs mm-hmm. as opposed to replicating whatever comes from the West is good, but it doesn't apply here. Mm-hmm. You know, so And that's where the challenge is. I think it's also a mindset, mm-hmm. realizing <clears throat> that our policymakers, they need to understand that 
we can learn from the West. Mm. We can learn from our partners because we don't have to revamp the wheel. Really. Mm. We don't. <coughs> we can learn from them. There's so much we can learn. They also learn from us. Mm. But once we are able to learn, we need to be able to contextualize, mm. bring it home, make it so it is, it is fit for purpose, for our context, for our needs. And that's how we can be able to implement and be successful. Do you think we have the political will to do that? Well, it, if it favors those who are in power, <laughs> things will happen. Yeah. <coughs> political economy is a very challenging area because mm-hmm. you have vested interests. Yeah. So if such evidence goes contra to uh, vested interest of uh, those in power... Which is often the case. <laughs> it won't happen. Yeah. But if it does and it, it rubs people the right way, mm. it will happen. So there's a lot of us people in the mix and how do we do that <coughs> one conversation i've had is how do we build stronger institutions mm. because we can't leave countries at the helm at the way at the at the at the whim and fancies of individuals mm. we need to have institutions we need to have institutions that will outlive the leaders mm. if i'm the president if i go i go but mm. institutions stay and they can execute such evidence, mm-hmm. such uh, research, if it needs, is needed for policy making. The problem is there is what we call elite capture mm-hmm. in our countries. And that's why some donors are very keen on building the capacity, civic capacity of citizens to hold their governments to account. The elite capture is a problem because mm-hmm. then institutions fail. Mm-hmm. Institutions fail to actually deliver. In the Western world, you see presidents come and go. Mm-hmm. But matters of national interest are executed by institutions that have been built over years. Mm-hmm. And that's how our countries need to gravitate to. Mm-hmm. We see that in Rwanda. Tanzania is trying. You know, we saw the transition of the presidents because there are institutions in place to oversee mm-hmm. actual implementation of some of the things of national interests. Mm-hmm. And I think that's until we get there, it's a struggle. Yeah, I, I know we can talk about research for hours, <laughs> but we need, we need to move a bit to yeah. the next thing, uh, which is higher education. That's mm-hmm. another area where Pasca is heavily involved. In fact, yeah. many of us have been trained in pedagogy by Pasca, and mm-hmm. uh, higher education is a big thing. But uh, with COVID, we also saw that uh, the, the, the stands on which higher education is built is not that firm after all you mm-hmm. know, in most of our countries. And we've had such high impact mm-hmm. uh, on uh, on the institutions themselves and even having to rethink mm-hmm. how teaching happens, what happens in the classroom and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the mechanism by which we teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any new things that PASGA is doing just to be able to build the capacity? Because most of us lecturers are dinosaurs <laughs> of yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we, we have been in the system for a long time using the old methods. What can we actually do mm-hmm. uh, in order to minimize on the impact that COVID-19 has had on higher education? But I, I guess I can also add that it's not just higher education. We are talking about it impacted. In this country, at least the lower levels were closed for close to two years. So mm-hmm. so that at some point is going to have even greater impact on higher education at, you know, in the future. Mm-hmm. And yet we are here. Oh, that's a two hours question. Just one question. <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, first, I think Pedro's intervention was a blessing in disguise in many ways. It was It was a foresight in, in many ways because when it all started <coughs> no one knew COVID is going to come. It started in 2018 
Yeah. And then when COVID came, we flipped into online. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we've learned of many lessons from Pedro is the need to institutionalize learning. The need to build capacity and have the relevant infrastructure needed to execute blended learning. Mm-hmm. This pedagogy <coughs> where students rely on a lecturer, they go empty-headed and lecturer is the gives manner from heaven is 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 outdated mm. let's say and and i want to speak what to one of the i think admirable university in africa african leadership university they have a very interesting model mm. where students learning is experiential that's in nairobi it's right? in, no it's in kigali and mauritius okay. uh, uh, um, they move from pedagogy to andragogy to heterogogy it's not about you coming to class and lecture notes and students take notes. No. It allows students to learn. You as a teacher can also sit down and listen to what students learn and what they, how they want to learn. The world has gravitated towards that direction. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we are still not yet there. Mm-hmm. <coughs> now, let's work with what we have, these yeah. the pedagogical approaches. Because most public universities in Africa, they go through pedagogical leadership, mm-hmm. pedagogical training. Now, they use pedagogical model. What we need is to institutionalize. Mm. In the wake of COVID-19, one thing that we discovered very quickly in the lack of capacity our institutions have, the lack of infrastructure, poor investments in infrastructure, Mm. especially for students to access classes online. Because what we have seen is, and we have a research that we are doing in Kenya, the impact of COVID on higher education in Kenya is inequality in education access. Mm. Access has become an issue. Children who are coming from poor families, they can no longer access higher education because data, internet, and we know in Africa from ANTA 2019 report, one out of five Africans cannot have access to internet. And cost of internet is very high. Connectivity is also challenging in many ways. Mm. Now, <clears throat> if you think about that and they need to institutionalize and make sure that higher education is blended. So there's that move now. One of the things we are pushing for is also a blended approach, not only within the university, but at the police level, working with commission for universities across countries mm-hmm. uh, uh, to institutionalize the laws and policies, how to monitor, how to have a quality assurance mechanism, because no one have, has ever thought about it before. Mm-hmm. We used to do quality assurance the traditional way. Mm-hmm. Now with online teaching, how are you going to do it? Universities can have their own system. So at the university level, we need to institutionalize such that all professors are taught how to teach online because some of the old dinosaurs, you see, <laughs> they struggle. They can't even know how to log in. And it's a frustration to students. They can't speak, but it's true. Mm. <coughs> and it's not only putting your slides online and start rambling around them just like that. How do you use digital tools to be creative you, you will to make engage? our students very happy to listen to that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To engage. How do you engage students mm-hmm. to stay alert? Because online get, people get bored quickly. Yeah. How do you engage them? How do you make them interested mm-hmm. in listening and, and following your course? So I think there's the how of teaching, there's also the supply side, the the tools that you need, the mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure, infrastructure that you need, the policies buy in the political will of the institution mm. so that's also key but it should not be left at the institutional level 
it should be mainstreamed and become a, um, a national policy yeah. because it's a good thing. And we don't know what is going to come tomorrow. Pandemics come and go in yeah. different shapes and form. So do we want to be unprepared for what is going to come tomorrow, given the lessons we have now? Mm. The world has gravitated online a long time ago. Mm. Our governments and universities have to prioritize that. I think that's really important, especially when you talk about bringing it to the national level, because mm -hmm. there are several contradictions. On the one hand, you're saying students can now go online, universities should you know, have infrastructure to... Higher education is expensive, but on the other hand, you're, you're not having any policy measures to reduce just the cost of data to ensure that uh, the ones who are disenfranchised, the ones who are now excluded because uh, learning has gone online can also be brought on board. It's just not there. So I think taking it to the national level is a very, very key thing uh, that you talk about. Now, um, going to still on higher education but uh, linking it to professional development because now you're talking about building capacity of lecturers. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any other opportunities that are there at Pasca for, for, and I'm asking this question because we are in this university and uh, there are more people probably hearing about Pasca for the first time mm -hmm. and uh, what professional development opportunities are there when you look at these dinosaurs like us? There are many and they're coming up. We have trainings, now we have partnered with uh, a few institutions where we, we are going to offer, what? okay, maybe let me speak of a couple. One is the Network for Impact Evaluation Researchers in Africa, where we are going to offer trainings on impact evaluation for public policy, mm -hmm. building skills, quantitative and qualitative skills on how to evaluate public policies mm -hmm. in the continent. But we are also doing, uh, with our partners in the United States, we are going to have... Uh, session maybe early next year on experiments, public mm. policy experiments. When you're talking of politics and governance, mm. these days people use experiments to test some of the hypotheses that are very... Otherwise, you would not be able to establish cause effects, so to mm. speak. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so there will be opportunities for new frontiers of knowledge that mm. are now dictating how research is done, training on uh, methodology, research transparency, reproducibilities, mm -hmm. uh, which um, new phenomena in the African context, in the West, it is, it is something that the, the Western countries have advanced, especially America and Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so there are opportunities for that. But, but what is important is, is uh, what I discussed, the Pasca Plus, mm -hmm. the people learning, understanding, and sharing. This platform creates opportunities not for the dinosaurs only, also for students, Mm. for researchers, for civil society, for public, private sector, all our partners in, embraced in one platform that we're going to create. Mm. And that offers many opportunities. One is create a bigger community of practice, mm. African scholars with different interests coming together within public policy and governance discourse. And mm. I hope the dinosaur students in this university can also be a part of that journey. <clears throat> but what is important, I think, is, is, is that coming together. You know, you, you, you want to have access to some things online. You can get them through our platforms. Mm. You want to get access to resources and people who are working in a particular field within our domain. You can get that. So these are the opportunities over and above the user trainings that we have the Mixed Method Institute that is mm. going to be... The, the, we have the Just Joint uh, Academic, um, I can't remember the acronym very well, which brings together researchers to exchange and share knowledge. We're going to have quite a number of initiatives that will allow interactions in the, within our network.
Mm, I'm, I'm really excited about the plus. In March, I was in Nairobi. And one Kenyan minister said that Africa is a country of downloaders, that the scholars in Africa only download, mm-hmm. and then uh, scholars in other parts of the world upload. Mm-hmm. So in terms of using knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, we are users, we are not creators. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, sometimes it's not also true that uh, knowledge is not being created, mm-hmm. but it's not out there. Not many people know about it mm-hmm. because I, I do my research, put it in the in, in my space there. The community here know about it, but anybody else outside does not know about it. And and then when you're talking decolonizing education, you know, knowledge even, uh, how do we get those that are, are sitting on our various mm-hmm. tables and mm-hmm. shelves and everywhere to actually go? So this is for me an exciting platform mm-hmm. to 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 work with and, yeah. and I hope that many more people will will have the opportunity to work with it. But lastly, because I know that uh, we have to run, <laughs> we've, been, we've taken a lot of time, the conversation mm-hmm. is interesting. But uh, lastly, uh, I think for me, it's questions around uh, research utilization yeah. and, and which brings me to the issue of communication. Mm-hmm. It may seem that um, communication is a challenge not just to to our youth, but also to, to people who teach and people who do research, that they do excellent research, but they don't know how to communicate it to ordinary publics, mm-hmm. to... to, to um, to, to the communities where data was sourced, that mm. they get to understand, like the Busia example you gave, mm. that somehow you get to know that, oh, this research was done in this community, this is how we are affected, how do we need to, you know, uh, change our behavior, because some of it is just, you know, behavior mm. communication, mm. <laughs> that mm. you're communicating in a way that the, you don't even need a big public policy thing, you mm. just need to be able to mm. change the behavior of the community based mm-hmm. on findings that have come in this research. Mm. So how do we use the the, the, the the tools of communication to ensure that the various layers of partners of um, publics from policymakers to communities actually understand what has been done okay so uh, that's uptake basically uh, yeah. utilization in the sense of uptake yeah. and, and engagement and identifying first of all i think is to identify to map out who are these stakeholders who are these uh, people beneficiaries of the research that has been produced that's key because if you don't have the clear mapping, mapping of who is who, you're you are likely going to go in the wrong direction. Mm. <clears throat> who is likely to benefit from the research? Number one. And I think if I am to borrow our concept of Utafiti Sarah, they need to have co-creation. Remind me what Utafiti Sarah in English is? Research policy. Research policy platform. So yeah. this is where the co-creation, the co-ownership mm. of the evidence of the generation of that evidence and of the evidence is key because uptake and utilization of research, even that behavioral change you're referring to, requires understanding what people want. So how would you understand if you don't engage, if you don't spend time to assimilate, if you use the sociologist terminologies, if you don't assimilate within that community, find ways, who are the key players who, who can actually help disseminate that information to the right people for change. You need to know the influencers. These days on social media, you have influencers, people mm-hmm. that everyone is following on Instagram, on Twitter, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they have millions and millions of people following them. So we need to think about that. The way we do on Twitter, 
to engage. We need to be as creative as we are on Twitter and Instagram. We need to think about the community as a unit and identify who are the key players. <coughs> How can we engage these people? What tickles them? You need to understand what tickles people. Because you can have evidence, and if you don't know how to, what tickles people, you are lost. You need to understand how to frame that evidence to mirror what people want to hear. Because if you, have a, if you become monologue, the way most researchers are, this is how I was trained, this is how I package and communicate, people lose interest. So it requires that ability to understand the audience, the people who are going to consume this. And putting yourself in their shoes is helpful in terms of how you're going to frame and package. It's all about packaging. Mm. It's all in the marketing and packaging of that evidence to shape the behavior of the people who are going to use that evidence. Mm. And how do you use advocacy? Advocacy is key. Now, there's a difference between advocacy and lobbying. So lobbying you pay to get your things done. Advocacy, you create awareness. Mm. <clears throat> so investing in advocacy is also key so that mm. people become aware. There are so many channels that you can use. Media, these days, it's WhatsApp. You know, groups. as you talk about investing, uh, the way we don't like investing, even in research, <laughs> we, we find investing so hard that we have to wait for somebody else most times to, to take it could, it could, it, it, Because we think investing is somebody to put money. It could be you exploiting your social networks. Mm-hmm. That's an investment. Mm-hmm. It how how active are you? How much do you spend on Twitter mm-hmm. right now? But because you invest in building social networks, mm-hmm. that's an investment. And when you have work out, you share. And mm-hmm. it gets retweeted and retweeted and shared and reshared. Mm-hmm. That's an investment. So we think you need to think we need to get out to think out of the box. <coughs> Investment in kind through our own social networks, especially at a community level. Mm. But we also have, I've, I can tell you for a fact, if you have good stories, if you have good evidence, well mm. packaged, yeah. <coughs> media houses will kill to have you. Mm. I've had conversation with media. They would, they would call me. They would want to talk about it because they give you a platform to hear it. Mm, and so for free, for free. But <laughs> researchers don't use those opportunities, mm. you know. And when they get such opportunities, they they squander them. Mm. Why? Because they fail to have effective communication. They still keep forgetting that they are talking to the layman. Mm-hmm. And layman wants something that they can easily digest and make sense of. <laughs> I'm laughing because you reminded me of one economist that was invited on television and I, I, I felt like I had gone back to my economics class, <laughs> economics 100. <laughs> What's it and I thought, okay, I actually studied economics, how many people are understanding what these people are talking on television, you know. But you're an economist and you're speaking very... <laughs> simple language that anybody who's going to watch this program is going to be happy to engage with because yeah. uh, most times we think that we must bring the language of the classroom, of the textbook to the media. And, and we miss out. And we and miss, we out, miss big, out big time because the, the magic is in the simplicity. If you can't make it simple for someone, a layman to understand, you don't know what you're saying. For me, that's my philosophy. Mm. If you're good at what you do, you'll be able to break down and make it simple for everyone to understand. Mm. If you can't do that, you don't even understand what you're supposed to say. Yes. And that's the challenge of many researchers because speaking in jargons and technical terms, showing your abilities and prowess and whatever, it's not really an indicator of uh, 
you know, language, they say, it's not an indicator of intellectual capacity. Right. It's just a medium of communication. Mm. The simple you can communicate and engage the third part, which is supposed to receive your message, you win. Mm. Because then there's an effective communication. Mm. But if you want to speak complicated language that no one understands, you're failed as a researcher to begin with. Mm. And your, 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 your evidence will go nowhere. So I think that that's where we need to invest. And these are some of the skills that can be built when people are being trained. Mm. How do you communicate effectively? Simplicity is key. Make mm. it simple, straight, everyone can engage and understand. Mm. <coughs> it doesn't make you less of who you are. Mm. It doesn't make less of a professor or a technocrat. But it's just recognizing that there are different audiences that would need to understand that evidence and chew it. Mm. But for them to do so, it needs to be packaged in a way that it is easy for them to follow and engage with. Okay, so finally, uh, where where do you see PASGA in the next five years and what, what is it uh, going to be contributing to this conversation? Shall it sustain uh, this kind of conversation? Because it's a conversation that needs to be happening, that needs yeah. to continue happening because we take it for granted that people actually know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you will be surprised that so many uh, people take many of these things for granted, even including the, the, the yeah. idea that you have to be simple in your communication. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so where do you see the role of Pasca in all this? So Pasca is, 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 is in the short term to medium term, we see Pasca to be a more vibrant organization than it was before. So now my response will be the first 10 years <coughs> was more of the setup and now the institution has matured. Mm. The next 10 years... I must say it's impressive based on... Mm. Because I've been engaged with Pasca for 10 years now, since Mm -hmm. 2012, when I first got trained Mm. in research and and seeing what has happened over the last 10 years. uh, We must congratulate you for the impact you've had on communities Mm -hmm. of scholars Mm -hmm. everywhere. So now is to take it, to scale it up. So my responsibility in the next 10 years, God willing, is, is, is to transform to PASGA, to what we call PASGA 2.0. Mm-hmm. A PASGA that is engaging at regional level. It reaches the impact of the work that is being done is felt within the continent and outside the continent. And we have started. We have now global footprint. We have now global visibility. We are, going to, we are working hard to making sure PASGA becomes truly a pan-African entity that it wants to decolonize knowledge we are now going into Francophone Africa, Southern Africa. We are trying to reach to as many parts of Africa as possible with one goal in mind, mm. building and capacity, advancing research excellence in public policy and governance in Africa. Mm. That's our key. And we see that role. We see that traction from our partners. And we are very hopeful that in the next five years, our impact will be felt much higher mm. than it is right now. Okay, that's exciting. We look forward to the next five years and we hope we shall be partners in those years and uh, continue you. working together. Mm-hmm. And uh, our community is happy as as, uh, as somebody who has uh, been able to engage with you today. I'm very excited. And uh, once again, Karibu. Asante sana. And uh, how do they say, Safarinjema, when you go back. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Yeah. You are on Conversation with Comfort, which is a platform where we discuss policy and research matters. It's hosted by the Africa Policy Center, and uh, we find 
uh, fine sons and daughters of Africa to talk to them about issues that concern Africa.